Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday, so looking at the list of the yard sites this week, and the one you can zero in have something to say about is someone not so well known at all. Velazhener, the son of Chaim Velazhener. Everybody's heard of Chaim Velazhener, obviously. I assume most of the people listening to this have heard of Chaim Velazhener. But I don't think so many people know about his son. Um, it was a very all these people are very interesting, but you know, some people get the limelight, and others less so. This is often the fate of those who have the fortune or the misfortune to be the son of great men. <laughs> so, you know, the guy will never have any identity of his own. He'll always be the son of somebody else, like the Vildegon's son, you know, or his brother or something like that. There are people like that, but you, all we know him is, is the Vildegon's son or the Vildegon's brother or cousin. Uh, but to get to our story, Chaim Belazhener is somebody who made it, uh, let's see, he was born in 1780 and died in 1849. So think about that. It's the late 1700s, <clears throat> early 1800s, first day of 1800s. Very stormy, very interesting period, and very complicated, very complicated period in Jewish history, Eastern European Jewish history. This is the period when the old kingdom of Poland that I've spoken about before, the good old kingdom of Poland, was swallowed up by the Tsarist Russian Empire. That is the Numitsius. We talk about Russian Jewry, I've said many times here that uh, there's no such thing as Russian Jewry. They're the provinces of Poland that were taken over by the Russians. Starting in 1772 and later in the, in, in the 1790s. So, in other words, when Belushan was growing up, this means the new reality is the Russians. So, understand Jews living in what we call today Lithuania or Belarus, but it was at that time a Polish territory where the guys with power, the local nobles, are all Polish. But now it's coming under the regime from uh, from Russia, from mm-hmm. St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. from the from the czars. Uh, that's a very complicated set of relationships I just I mentioned. And then you got to do with the Jews. If he's born in 1780, that means he was 17 years old when the Vilnagon died. So probably he met the girl, you know. Just, I mean, I'm just saying, give you a perspective of what's going on over here. Because Rechaim Velazhener, as everybody knows, was very close with the Vilnagon. And the town of Velazhener itself is not really that far. So uh, here's somebody saw the girl. Uh, what's really interesting is that we're told, uh, let's put it this way, this touches, was a moscule of, if you know what I mean by that, not what you think. This is the story, as I sometimes put it, of the Haskell that it never was. The Lithuanian Jews, the Misnagdom and all that, contrary to popular belief, had a uh, weak spot, a uh, openness to Haskell. By that I mean Things other than just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. Of course, it goes without saying. 95%, 98% is Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. But there's room, like in the Renaissance, you know, for 2%, 3%, 5%, whatever, 8%, for things that are other than Gamar. And it's the attitude that goes, even the Villagos like that a little bit. And it's the attitude that says the more you know about the world, the more you understand about the Bria, the better it is. You want to have a broad mind education, even though there's no question of the primacy of Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. That's what I mean by the Haskell, that 
never happened because, uh, well, in the lifetime of Bitsa Balachan, it sort of happened and then didn't. The story of his life is the story of a Haskalah that might have developed. I would call it a from Haskalah. But then things got totally screwed up and it didn't develop. And instead you have a, a very bitter enmity between the from world on one hand and the Haskalah on the other. Today, uh, most of you don't even know what I'm talking about. If you say the word Haskalah, you immediately think of some anti-from things like reform or whatever. Um, and it wasn't particularly in the beginning. So if he's born in 1780, just think, you know, he's uh, in 1800, he's 20 years old. He's growing up in what we call today the Napoleonic period. Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812. He went out of business in 1815 after the Battle of Waterloo. This when Rambitzel was like 35 years old. These are formative years. And um, this was a time when, yes, there was a Hasidic movement growing by leaps and bounds. The Hasidic movement was not seen as something positive by the circles we're talking about. These were the Misnagdim. Although Chaim Belazhin was no way as anti-Hasidic, no way as uh, the Vilnagon, obviously. <laughs> he had good relations with them in some degree. And Rabbi uh, Yitzchak, Vitzel as they called him, was uh, at one point wanted to be a doctor. He was interested in science. He learned French and Polish. You see, uh, you know, through tutors. These are uh, not what you associate necessarily with a person that's going to be Rashid Vavolashan. And I'm not sure in his early youth this, this was exactly the career that he planned for himself, although that is the career that turned out. He became the rabbi in the city and the, the town I was there and in the Rashid of the yeshiva uh, after his father died in 1821. So here's somebody who ran the yeshiva for close to 30 years. From 1821, let's say, to 1849, it's, it's uh, 28 years was a piece of, you know, a, a, an interesting piece of time. Now, as I said before, the, the idea of a broader knowledge other than just Gemara, 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 in and of itself, was not necessarily trafe. I'll just give you an example. Who's against math? You see, there's nothing uh, from or not from about math, about arithmetic, about algebra, uh, geometry, and things like that. We all know the Vilnagan himself wrote a book on geometry. Uh... So the, the, the fact that it is not just classic Torah learning doesn't in and of itself make it trafe. On the other hand, there are other types of non-Gemara subjects which are uh, intrinsically, um, idea, ideologically uh, hostile or at least challenging. So there's a big difference between math, for example, on the one hand, and philosophy, for example, on the other hand. Or if it's the early 19th century... Uh, history, the study of the Jewish past, which is beginning in the early 19th century, and it's bringing a Western perspective, which is very sp- skeptical and historicist about the stories in the Bible and the Talmud and all that kind of business. That's already a different kettle of fish. That's already, you know, that the secular subject itself is one which is, shall I say, anti-fundamentalist, anti-nomian, and uh, therefore uh, will be hostile, and uh, to use English, to make the kids I'm from. So, uh, this is the world in which this person is growing up. He lived to be almost 70, so the first half of his life is up to the end of Napoleon, and the second half, the last 35 years or whatever, close to that, is uh, after Napoleon. Now, uh, how do things go? Nobody knows exactly why Reb Chaim Voloshner started the Voloshner Yeshiva around 1802, in the middle of the Napoleonic era, but that's what happened. Reb Chaim died, I think, in 1821. So, uh, the son took over... At a time when we find, I remember this, 
the, the number one Moscow in Russia was uh, Levinson, and he published a book like Hatuda or something like that, which was advocating what I just said before, an openness to things other than Gemara, 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 although not in the way that would hurt the Jewish religion. Now, to be perfectly honest, this guy Levinson was anti from but he pretended not to be. And he got Haskamas on that safer. Uh, is it Hatudab Israel or some name like that? He got us coming from the biggest rabbis. Yes, I remember there, the Robin Vilna, uh, Ababa Paschal, Paschal, and people like that. Uh, it's it's funny, it's surprising. Uh, one thinks of people like Rabbi David Luria and others who were big Gaonim at that time, who has secular education somehow or other. It doesn't exactly fit our picture that we have of an Eastern European rabbi. It's all types. Now, um, in addition to what I just said, we have to throw in the Russian component because uh, the fact is that once you finish 1815, so for the next 100 years, Poland and Belarus was handed over to the Tsars of Russia. It became part of the Russian Empire. I've spoken about this a little bit before, but it's a and others. This was a tricky business because the Russian Empire was a dictatorship. Uh, autocracy is the technical term. But the Tsar, the Tsar in, in, in St. Petersburg, I mean, he doesn't spend all day long, you know, reading every line and uh, pointing every dog catcher. He created an army of bureaucrats. And these bureaucrats, governors, administrative officials, or whatever, ran the empire. The nature of bureaucrats, Russian bureaucrats in the 19th century, is you want to make sure everybody's Russian. So, what do you do with all the Polacks? and all the Belarusians and the Ukrainians and the Jews and the Lithuanians, the other, you want to uh, erase as much as possible their cultural uniqueness and get them to blend into Russians. You see, they, they're, not, they're, they're white, they're not black, as I always say, they're, they're not Asian, so they don't stand out. So if you convert them, either culturally or religiously, uh, then they're part of you. So you just added them to your strength. That is the mentality of the Russian bureaucracy. And therefore, they were hostile on many levels to the Jews and to Jewish culture because the Jews were numerous. They were growing in the 1800s by, by leaps and bounds. There's population, people don't know this, in the Russian Empire, which is the Polish province of the Russian Empire, increased by millions, by millions in the 1800s. You hear that? They had a baby boom of unprecedented proportions. I'm not exactly sure why. So the Jews were all over the place in these provinces. They usually controlled the economy. Because the people at the stores and the businesses and the merchants and all that kind of stuff usually were Jewish. Uh, the Jewish are very clannish. They talk Yiddish. They, they, they have solidarity. They hang among each other. And you had an ocean of autonomous coercive communities, the Cahillas of old, which in the beginning of 1800 still had the power of a death penalty and things like that. You know, the, the strong autonomy. And from the Russian point of view, it's a state within a state and it's a hostile people. Now, really, 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 the Russians were stupid. The from Jews are the last ones who want to get involved in politics. The from Jews say like this, just the, the, the czar should leave us alone and we'll be loyal to him. I'm serious, I'm not being funny. You know, just tell us what you need for, for tax-wise and otherwise, and let us live our lives of cultural insularity. Uh, had the czars listened to that, they would have had a lot less trouble. But they were a bunch of fools. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Alexander I, Nicholas I, and Alexander II, Alexander III, and Nicholas II. These are the five or six people that ruled Russia from 1800 down to the First World War when the Russian royal family was just liquidated by disgruntled, uh, you know, subjects. And during the 1800s, they tried to make Russia as uh, homogeneous as possible 
And I'm skipping over the other nationalities. As far as the Jews are concerned, they thought this is just terrible. What they wanted the Jews to stop dressing Jewish, stop talking Jewish, and if possible, stop being religiously Jewish. Can't you convert them all? Now, the first czar in the 1800s was Alexander I. It was so from 1801 to 1825. So this would be the first, uh, let's see now, 25, 45 years of Rabbi Yitzhak Mevelajan. So for the first 45 years of his life, it was bad enough. But the regime didn't poke too much into the local Jewish communities. It was clear that the government is hostile. At that time, it wasn't too hard to bribe the local Russian administrators. The Russian regime was mainly interested in suppressing the Poles and the others and incorporating as much as possible into Russia. It was clear from the government's point of view that the Jews are considered a negative element. They, they wanted the Jews to become farmers and peasants. Yeah, right. <laughs> the bureaucrats didn't want to become farmers and peasants, but they wanted the Jews to because they liberate them. You know, it's good for you, but it's not good for me. It's all, the whole Russia was run on lies. It really was run on lies. And uh, was, that's Russian history, but I'm not going to go into that. And uh, therefore, you know, there were just commissions and other government laws passed that always were causing trouble for the Jews. But when he, at the age of 45, for the last uh, 25 years of his life, things got much worse. Because in 1825, the Tsar died and his brother took over for the next 30 years. That's Tsar Nicholas I, who was the Tsar of Russia from 1825 1855. 30 years. He was a mamzer He made the others look good. And under Nicholas I, he was a narrow-minded autocrat uh, who was determined that shouldn't be even the slightest diminution of his dictatorship powers, shouldn't be in the slightest possibility of the people below having some ideas of their own and wanting some kind of political development. He really turned on a very heavy dictatorship, which was stupid because it means all the other countries in Europe were moving slowly but surely towards a democracy and a stable uh, system. In Russia, they doubled down on the autocracy and the dictatorship, and it just made it that Russia is really a police state. That's what they kind of invented that term there. And if you push too hard, you get a pushback. That's when the uh, terrorism started. That's when the rebels against the Tsarist regime commenced during the reign of Nicholas I. Uh, during his time, he really crushed them. But after his time, the, 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 the terrorism grew by leaps and bounds and complicated the Tsarist regime and destroyed it eventually. So uh, Nicholas I just didn't get that. Instead, he wanted a place like Prussia under Frederick the Great, where there's absolute obedience by everybody at all times. And you look at all the Jews, he hated the Jews. He was anti-Semite, he hated the Jews. There's a famous story that he, I think I told you this, he passed through um, the Jewish provinces in Lithuania somewhere, and all the Jews came out to greet him and acclaim him, and instead of being turned on by this demonstration of loyalty, he said, oh my God, how many people with black beards and, uh, you know, payers, it's disgusting. I didn't realize we had so many Jews, we got to do something about it. It's also true, by the way, he said, how come the Jewish girls are so pretty? The men are so ugly and the girls are so pretty. He couldn't, he couldn't cop that. I always thought that's interesting. Anyway, uh, from the time he became the Tsar in 1825-1826 until uh, he died, it, you could regard this as a continual war by the regime against traditional Judaism and the Jewish population with the intention of the regime to... Uh, ultimately convert the Jews, but in the long term, in the short term, uh, get rid of the old Jewish culture, get rid of the Jewish 
Nomianism, the Jewish autonomous course of communities, and the Jewish cultural insularity. And by that I mean uh, get rid of Frumkite. So at one stroke of a pen, like in 1827 or 8, he abolished the autonomous course of communities. Uh, he just issued a decree. For now, when the Jewish communities don't have the right to uh, coerce them by weakening their, their uh, economy. Now, the guy wasn't a liberal. Uh, he was a real dictator. But he wanted the Jews not to have power among themselves. Then, little by little, he, he passed all kinds of laws in which he tried to stop the Jews from keeping mitzvahs. It's really like a, like a, a story from, you know, the, the, the fairy tales. But it really happened in the 1800s. The most egregious, I mean, he passed a law that you have to pay extra taxes to have Shabbos lights, you know, candles for Friday night, to try to put that out because he knew how much Shabbos was a big part of Judaism. He launched Mamish, a physical war against Shetos. Uh You probably don't know this. Once upon a time, the Litvisha women, the Misnagdim, did like Satmar, used to shave the head. Uh, and then put a shake on. That was like universal. We think it's only a Hasidic custom. No, it was a universal custom. There's a book out there where the guy describes in Hebrew in great detail uh, the campaign uh, by the police and the government under Nicholas I to, to, to strip uh, shakels off of women in the street and compel them to uh, not, not, not cover their hair because he considered that to be a primitive and anti-modern uh, business. It's a little bit like, it's not the same thing, but it's a little bit like the French banning the, uh, the, the burqa. You know, that's how they saw it. And uh, similarly, he, 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 he did pass laws in the Russian Empire and enforced them that the Jews can't dress Jewish. Once again, you'll be surprised to hear that the Litvaks and the others also dress like the Hasidim with the Strymel and all the rest of it once upon a time. These were old Polish dress styles that were universal throughout the old kingdom of Poland including Lithuania, and uh, Nicholas I broke it. I mean, you know, uh, they went through the street, and everybody dressed like that. They chopped their ear off or things like that, uh, beat them up. Uh, they really enforced police laws. It's too long of a story to go into, but uh, it, that's why the Litvaks, you know, started dressing a little more Western, even passed laws saying you, can, you have to adopt the German-style dress or the Russian-style dress, but you can't have the Jewish-style dress, and the Jews, by and large, pick the uh, Russian style dress, and that's why the Chavetz Chaim wears that funny little hat, and, you know, that, that sort of thing. Something you never saw in Hasidic territory. Uh, that's why the Lubavitchers, by the way, can't dress like the other Hasidim with their strimals. They dress, uh, you know, with the other hats and, you know, spudics and things like that, because uh, these laws were enforced in Lubavitch land and in white Russian Belarus, which is part of the Russian Empire. Uh, so, the, And there are many others. The, the worst, of course, I think everybody knew this was the Cantonist. It was Nicholas I who made this business where Jews now have to be part of the army and every Jewish community has to supply recruits. And by the time the ugly process is over, it's little kids, usually the poor, the helpless, the orphans, and the others. And, you know, not anybody with protection. And this was a tremendous Chol Hashem. And he made sure that these kids are in the army for 25 years and they will convert somewhere along the way. Very few were able to not convert. There are many laws about this. Now I'm only telling you to set the, the, the background. This is the last 20, to be exact, the last uh, 24 years of the life of uh, Bitzel Velazhin. This is what he had to run into. He, like I said before, despite the fact he was interested in secular studies, 99% of the time was learning. And so he turned out to be a big Talmud Chalam. You know, I don't know how to compare him to his father, but he was a big deal. Uh, what's really interesting is, just like Rav Chaim, he was a big diplomat, 
So all the Litvaks, if I can use that term, of the Russian Empire considered him to be the Godolador. That's interesting, I just said. Usually we have a lot of fights. But there was no question at the time of Chaim Belozhener, all the Rabbonim and all the communities looked at him to be the leader. And when he, when he died, his son, Rabbi Yitzhak, occupied the same position. So he must have been a very impressive uh, person. Number one is a Talmud Chacham. And number two, as a, uh, like I say, a diplomatic, a manhig. Because all the communities said, he's the man and he's the one we should follow. And they intuitively realized that you have to have some leader against the government. The policies of the government after 1825 was a continuous pressure against the Jews. Now, this moved by Madrigas. By the time you get to the 1830s and, and after that, the government zeroed in on the fact that the way to go against Judaism most successfully was, like the Gemara says, ain't Yashem and Gedoyim, that uh, you close down the haters and you close down the, the yeshivas. Close down the haters and close down the yeshivas. If you get rid of the chinuch system, uh, then you get rid of traditional Judaism, which is the plain truth. Now, uh, how are you going to do that? Well, um, one way is to just go down and close every cheder in the country. They did try things like that, but the Jews, through passive resistance, you know, you bribe the local guy not to look, and the uh, yeshiva, frankly, was officially closed down somewhere in the 1820s, and they bribed somebody to look the other way. This is this crazy business called the normal way of living in Tsarist Russia. To uh, so imagine you're Yitzhak Voloshin, and you have to hold the fort. He would rub after his father in the town, and he was the, ooh, what shall I say, the Rosh Yeshiva of the Voloshin Yeshiva, which, as I think everybody knows, was the highest yeshiva in the Eastern Europe, among the Nachasidim, arguably even more. And that means that you attracted the best guys uh, to learn there. And that means he has to give Shiorim. And uh, he must have been a, a giant Talmud Chacham. He left nothing in writing, so we don't know. But how could you be the Rosh Hashiva for 30 years uh, and just occupy a sinecure, you know, that you just do it because of your father? He obviously was a Balat Bar himself. And the result, the impression I get, me, myself, and I, from reading anything about him, or a little bit, he left over a little bit of him in writings, Perkyobus and things like that, is he's a very normal middle person extremely uh, uh, responsible, extremely balanced. This is what we call a manhig. You know what I mean? You know, he's like doing crazy to the right, nothing crazy to the left. And he suffered, I mean, he had the misfortune of living under Nicholas I. And so, um, when the government ratcheted up and started drafting the kids and kidnapping, what are you going to do? When the government says you got to change the clothes and all that, what, what can you do? And when the government goes after the haters and the yeshivas, Oh my goodness, what, 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 what do you do? <clears throat> Nicholas, di- during this period, the government of Nicholas I, uh, in, in an intelligent effort to undermine uh, from Yiddishkeit, what they did was they made a survey of the Jewish community and they uh, discerned that many of the local masculum, not all, but many of the local masculum, were people who really had it out for the from community. The closest I can come, because they, on, on, on certain principled grounds, since I'm talking to an American audience, today the best way for me to explain it is, think of these guys in New York who told on the state of New York about the fact that Hasidic Yeshiva is not a place they have no English. Uh, now why are they doing that? In their mind, 
they're doing because the kids are being shortchanged, you know, in Satmar and places like that. They're not getting any English education. And you can never persuade the Hasidim. So the only way to do it is use the power of New York State to come down upon them and force them. And therefore, they don't consider themselves to be Malshinim or Mosrim, obviously. They consider themselves to be uh, enlightened, uh, what shall I say, critics who are using the army of the government to benefit the young children who now will get a secular education. You all know what I'm talking about. There was this whole blow up last month, two months, and it spilled over into the regular Yishi world. So, um, this is what we're talking about in Russia. They went to the different Moskilim, and as they say, a fair number of them were exactly the type I saw, I just mentioned. The reason is because the definition of a Moskil is somebody who did not have a secular education, not a formal one in schooling, but resented that fact and became an autodidact. They taught themselves. They acquired, however they acquired, whatever secular education they picked up, some more and some less, and were very bitter at the system and considered the system to be corrupt and, and, and bad for the Jewish people, in their mind. And they were totally willing to cooperate with the state, to uh, the czarist state, to get rid of the old system, including the yeshivas and all the rest of it, and replace it with something better. What would be something better? If the government would say, we want Christian schools, they couldn't go along with them, because that would be open treason. What the government did in consulting with the Moskilim was to say like this, how about setting up a whole bunch of Moskilic schools? Replace the cheders with, uh, I use Baltimore terminology, even though it's not exactly the right way to do it, but I'll use it anyway. Replace the cheders with a betafella. You know, that, that sort of thing. In which, is not exactly against the traditional Judaism, not formally, but on the other hand, the education will be one in which traditionalism will be very much understressed. And uh, secular and certainly non-fundamental uh, kinds of uh, studies will be stressed. This is when you would put emphasis on Tanakh in terms of its poetry, the Hebrew language, uh, Jewish history, uh, you know, things of that nature, plus, of course, the secular subjects, and a little bit of Gemara. This happened in Germany 50 years before that, but eventually there's no Gemara, as you know. Uh, and eventually nobody's from. Uh, it certainly, although it pays lip service to fundamentalism, it didn't take that long for fundamentalism to go out the window. Uh, these Moskilim had no hesitation of uh, taking advantage of the opportunity the government offered them and a whole network of Jewish public schools, can I call them that? Jewish schools were opened all over Western Russia, Belarus and Lithuania and places like that, and uh, Ukraine. Uh, the, the, Jew, the Jewish communities themselves were forced by the government to pay for these schools, and these are jobs. So if you're in Moscow and you have a job, because how would you have one, uh, now you're a principal, now you're a teacher, now you're a school administrator, you get a salary. And so uh, it was very insidious. The front community wasn't exactly sure how to react to this, except they were really angry. Uh, this, my friends, was the condition of Jewish life in the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s in, uh, in Russia. And that's exactly the lifetime of Yitzhak Wolojner. Now, if he, would, he was in a, a funny situation... Uh, and this is the point I wanted to stress today. I can't give a whole long... As you can see, all these people I'm talking about are, are consequential individuals, and if you want to do it right, it would take, it would take hours. But uh, just very briefly, uh, very briefly, uh, people who have formal public positions, like Rabbi Sigvallashner, or the chief rabbis of old, 
they were in a uniquely vulnerable uh, situation because the government knew that they are key individuals. So if you twist their arm, uh, it's not so hard to twist the arm of a single individual. If you twist his arm, you'll get him to say what you want, and then that'll force all the others to like, line up in line. Because look, the big rabbi said it. Yeah, Moshe Feinstein said it. So how can you go against me? Remember, said it. So the government was really pressuring him all the time to go along with the Moscalic programs, to agree with the change of education, to do this, to do that. And he had, and he couldn't say what he would like to say, which is drop dead. Uh, drop dead twice. Uh, he can't say that. That's, he, it, that's not the cards he has. And so, to some degree or another, he was forced, willy-nilly against his will, to kind of go along, even though it was clear to everybody that's being done under, under extreme duress. It reminds me of the Noda Behuda back in the uh, early 1780s when he faced the same situation where the Austrian government knew he's the big rabbi and they kind of twisted his arm to agree to the opening of a Jewish public school, even though it was clear he didn't want to do it. Uh, and Rabbi Sebalajan found himself in this situation. Um, it, since he represented the status quo, the Jewish communities had a lot of, um, what shall I say, property is not the right word, but a lot of things institutions mm-hmm. that were there, and he didn't want them to be destroyed or overthrown. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, who, <clears throat> you know, he, he tried to, uh, you know, split the difference, to compromise, to save the best he could, and it was a very uncomfortable situation to be. Everybody among the Mesnagdim Mus- uh, uh, knew the guy's trying his best. This, and, and, and they understood he's a tragic figure because he's put in a bad spot. He's not the only one. Uh, Charles Salanter, perhaps you may recall, was pressured by the government to become a professor in Talmud in one of those rabbinical seminaries that the government set up. It was a full court press by Nicholas I and his minister, Count Uvara was the guy's name, to try to uh, co-opt the Jewish communal leadership to get them to agree to implement changes that these rabbis themselves were fundamentally convinced were hostile to the perpetuation of traditional Judaism. And uh, this is what the situation they found themselves in. And so in the 1830s, and especially in the 1840s, this may have killed him, by the way, 1840s, when, when these programs of the government were really in full swing, he was under tremendous stress. Uh, it was under tremendous stress. First of all, let's be honest, running a Volozhny Yeshiva was a full-time business, agreed? Some say he doubled the, the number of students from 100 to 200. Others, I saw, say cut in half from 100 to 55. It doesn't matter. Yeshiva, especially with big Tamil Chachamim, that's a place that requires, what's the right word, tipul but Talmidim. Do you know who or Talmidim or Bitsavalajan? Dar Chashokhan, for example, you know, uh, people like that. Shmuel uh, Molivar, I mean, some big names. Uh, these are serious. Uh, his students became leading Gedolim in Next Generation. Uh, just think of Dar Chashokhan or somebody, you know, just off the top of your head. So uh, that means you got to give a shear all the time, and you got to, you know, and he even gave a shear in, in Chumash and things like that. Additionally, Gemara, uh, running yeshiva itself is full time. And then to be the administrator of the yeshiva, in addition to what I just told you, is a tremendous burden. Because especially if more students came, you got to raise money in those days. So how do you do that? You got to kiss up to all the rich and, and, and maintain constant correspondence. It's a killer job. Now, in addition to what I just said, let me throw in that he was the rabbi of the community, and uh, it's never easy in Russia to be the rabbi of a Jewish community with all the local sechsuchim and fights. I won't go into that 
this time I could do that another another year. Uh, and then in addition to that, to have to deal with intra-Jewish, intra-communal um, problems of the Jewish people versus the czarist regime. I mean, just, just consider what I just said. And uh, it's very well known that he was always under constant pressure and the real, real from thought he's too uh, yielding and too giving. There are stories that he had a fight with Rizal Salanter over this. Uh, and of course, the left wing thought he's uh, not sufficiently, uh, shall I say, uh, you know, uh, flexible. And that's the trouble of being somebody in the middle, the, the, holding the responsibility. I would imagine it killed him, but I, I don't know that for sure. He was 69 when he died, so you can't, you can't tell. I'll share something very interesting. Uh, one of the schemes the Russian government came up with in the 1840s was to uh, introduce a certain type of Reform Judaism, a certain type, very mild form, of Reform Judaism in the Russian Empire by getting a um, rabbi, a German rabbi, to, uh, who was officially Orthodox, but really was a left-winger, and, uh, you know, today it would be like open Orthodox or something. And uh, to bring him to Russia and put him in charge of all Jewish education, all the schools, and persuade the Jews that it's in their own interest to switch all the cheders and yeshivas for, you know, Bethlehem and uh, Hebrew college type uh, educations. Uh, this was the grand scheme. The name of the rabbi was Max Lilienthal. As I said before, he's a guy who was from Germany. He went a few years to yeshiva in Germany, but mainly he wasn't uh, so from. And, uh, but he was from enough to, for them to say we got an Orthodox rabbi, and, which, of course, is never really the case. And uh, they brought him to Russia in the early 1840s. It's a long story. Um, and he tried to persuade the Russian Jews to switch to Chinuch, they called him into a room in a couple places and said, are you crazy? Don't you realize you're like a Judenrat? The, the government is using you as a traitor? It's not exactly clear if this made an impression, although he does write about it. His, if you're interested in the subject at all, uh, his uh, memoirs are unbelievable. Max Lilienthal. Uh, because he describes life in the Russian Empire uh, back in the 1840s, which is not so common to see, and in English. I remember that when he... What happened was that he was there for a couple of years and then he left because he saw the whole thing's not working out. And he eventually came to New York where he started as an Orthodox rabbi. But by the time he moved from New York to Cincinnati, he became a Reform rabbi. He's one of the early Reform rabbis. And he wrote a long article in the American New Jewish newspaper of that time, The Occident, from Isaac Leeser, in which he describes... <laughs> it's very, very interesting. He describes uh, life in Russia and the different groups and the, and the Misnagdim, and the Hasidim, he calls them the Schneerson group, and uh, it's, just, it's just very, very interesting. In addition to that, um, a big reform rabbi named Philipson, if I remember, David Philipson, was a real piece of work. I'm going by memory, I haven't seen this in about 40 years. I think in the Hebrew Union College Annual of 1915, I think, around then, he published a whole bunch of uh, unpublished memoirs of this Max Lilienthal, like autobiography of when he was in Russia. And when and one of the places this Max in English, and one of the places he went to was Volozhin, where he met with Vitsak Volozhiner, and he tried to persuade him. And I remember it was like Yom Kippur, 
and Rabbi Zavolashen took him to the mikvah, and all kinds of stories. And you see that Rabbi Zavolashen is looking at him like a you know a potential police spy, and he's being very very diplomatic, try to avoid this particular uh, gezera. What can I tell you? He did the best he could. Uh, they couldn't overthrow the government, so the pressure was on there. I'll say this. During the reign of Nicholas I, for the most part, uh, the Haskala and these kinds of threats were a small group that were trying to implant themselves within the large Orthodox masses. And so the public looked at them by and large as traitors, and the effort to convert the masses away from Gemara, Gemara, Gemara was not so successful because every push pr- pr- produces a counter-reaction. But things changed afterwards. Uh, if, I, if I can do this, I bet you many of you are familiar with the Nevesh from Chaim Velazhen, who talks about the sin of Adam and Eve. How's it go now? And he says, before they ate the apple, so the hate was external to them. The Yitzhar was outside of them. But after, so, so you could have a hero, but it wasn't within you. But after they ate the apple or whatever it was, then the hate was, then, then the Yitzhar is within you. Uh, and then yeah, we deal with the situation we have today. You have the Yitzhar inside of you. So you remember that? I'm sure, I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's like one of the most famous pieces. And similarly, in the time of Yitzhar Velazhener, he was successful enough to holding the firm together that the Haskala that I'm describing, the anti-firm one, uh, was external to the masses. But after his death, it became internalized. And the Haskala assumed a different form in the middle of the 19th century, less uh, traitorous to the Jewish people. It's a very complicated process, but I'm just uh, dumbing it down. And it became something internal to the Eastern European Jewry and caused a lot more trouble to the yeshivas uh, after his time, uh, frankly. So uh, I'm describing a person who uh, almost you know, carried a very heavy uh, burden and uh, fought a heroic uh, fight. Uh, there's a famous story, for example, that he was called in 1843, I think it was, by the government, by Lilienthal, to St. Petersburg, uh, together with the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the leader of the uh, Maskilim, like a three-man commission, that they should agree to issue a, a, a statement that they support the Haskalah. This is so typical. They're calling in three big from rabbis, including the Lubavitcher Rebbe of all people, that they should sign uh, an announcement that they support uh, Reform Judaism, essentially, that they should switch the haters to these new schools. That they should switch. Listen to this from Chumash and Rashi to Chumash and Mendelssohn. I kid you not, and uh, similar things. Now, this is so transparent. You understand? Uh, everybody can tell that even if they sign it, they don't mean it. It's being done under duress. Uh, you know, the czar is saying, "Do you agree? Do you agree? Do you agree?" Uh, this was a very uh, difficult episode. I don't think it came out great. Because uh, everybody had to sign in the end, uh, but the Lubavitchers put out a story now. Because everybody, when, when you talk about the past, it becomes very well, my team versus your team. Everybody lies, and so I remember I read a, a story. I think they 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 have something to the effect that the Tzemach said it. Lubavitcher he held out, but the Rizvolajner he gave in. Uh, but there are other places where it said Lubavitcher but he also signed something like that. It, all that misses the point. That's a tit for tat. What what's really going on is in these dictator regimes. They look for the forms, and they and for somehow or other, to get you to say that this is what you think is good enough for them. Stalin operated this way also. It's a little bit like those forced confessions 
from pre-modern law when they used to torture people. So yes, they could get all the rabbis to say, yeah, we support getting rid of the yeshivas. Yes, we support getting rid of the cheders. Everybody knew they didn't mean it. And therefore the fact that they came out with these decrees and formally, uh, you know, announced themselves that they want to have a renaissance of Jewish life and, you know, bring it more into modernity and they love Russia and they love the Tsar. You know what it is. You know, it's, a, it's obviously a, a false. But uh, welcome to Russia, my friends. So I've spoken long enough. I, uh, if you look up, or everyone reads things, but it's a you this is a precious type in Jewish history. The responsible leader who's not able to do something stupid because he knows he has on his shoulders the burdens of the claw. We don't have too many uh, people like that. And um, there, many times, like a bit of uh they don't have the limelight so much. People are more interested in people that do wild and, and, and daring and, and, and controversial things. What about the person who says, I can't afford to do something controversial? After Yashev, I have to think, I have to weigh everything out because so much of the claw is dependent on my, on my decisions. That'll be enough for now. It went too long anyway. Bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.